Hey listeners, this is Blake Montgomery, reporting in the aftermath of my first South by Southwest EDU. It was a whirlwind, and I loved it. I definitely felt like I was drinking from a fire hose, not only of information and talking, but of physical and mental exertion. At this moment, I think I would rather endure a swim in the San Francisco Bay than another panel on how virtual reality can solve the equity gap in teacherpreneurs creating personalized learning tools. I'm kidding, I would never go swimming in San Francisco. It's freezing. Also, that wasn't a real topic. It's a mishmash of a lot of the different panels that I went to. I even moderated one on the rise of teacherpreneurs. I, I have to say I did enjoy some of them. And if you're listening right now and you went to my panel, you are my favorite. I'm also really thankful that the panel was on Monday when people had energy. I'm not sure anyone would have showed up to my panel if it had taken place on Wednesday afternoon when everyone's suffering from panel fatigue. But the best part of South By was the broad swath of people I came into contact with. I know a lot more about makerspaces thanks to maker teacher Lindsay Own of Seattle. I'm excited for the direction Quizlet founder Andrew Sutherland is taking his San Francisco-based company. And I'm fascinated by the online curriculum that Anne Craybill is creating for the Crystal Bridges Museum in Arkansas. Speaking of people that we were captivated by, my colleague Mary Jo Matta also met someone at South by Southwest that she's been dying to know. She finally got to talk to Eric Scheninger, a former principal of New Medford High School and current senior fellow at the International Center for Leadership and Education. He was responsible for implementing his school's highly effective technology programs, and he's moved on to helping other schools do the same. We'll hear from Eric about the importance of efficacy, data, and accountability. And if you stay tuned until the end, you'll hear his one essential piece of advice for edtech companies. And you'll also hear Mary Jo Matta whisper, wow, in hushed, incredulous tones. I hope you enjoy it. All right, I'm here at South by Southwest EDU with Eric Scheninger. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. So can you give us a little bit of your background, sort of, you know, the, the life and times of Eric Scheninger? Yeah, uh, well, I was uh, the person that did not believe in technology, did not like it, did not believe in it, did not really felt it had a role in education. That's the short version. But uh, during that phase, I was a teacher, uh, administrator, and then principal of New Milford High School in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, I was just running my school like uh, basically all most of the schools in this country are run. And uh, by chance, in 2009, uh, the little blue bird started chirping in my ear. And I really was sort of awakened to the possibilities that I was holding my school back from. And uh, from that point forward, you know, I began to take control of my learning. We, as a school community, began to understand how technology could support and enhance what we were already doing. And from 2009 to 2014, we were able to radically transform the learning culture uh, that was really a digitally rich environment but in the process we got results and improved every metric that we were uh, judged on which is pretty cool and uh, then it just became where you know we really shared our story I mean we weren't the most innovative school but we were the best at sharing what we were doing before really anybody else was Mm. and our stories resonated with not just uh, educators in New Jersey but across 
the country, across the globe, and then eventually uh, the work uh, took on a life of its own, and uh, I left the principalship in September 2014 to begin working with the International Center for Leadership and Education, really targeting leaders, educators, on how they can begin the process of, you know, it's great if you have the stuff, but if the stuff's not getting results, you're wasting your money, you're wasting your time. So a lot of our work is how can we create a rigorous and relevant learning culture through not just technology, but the creation of powerful relationships and uh, set the stage for success. And this is your first time ever at South by Southwest EDU, is that correct? This is my first time ever at South by Southwest EDU. Typically, I'm on the road, <laughs> but I put up my calendar. I'm like, hey, if I'm not having anything, I want to go. I want to check out the ecosystem. want to you know, see what the you know, conversations are centered around and connect with some amazing educators. And it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like a little bit of a technolo technological skeptic, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, it's like, I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a skeptic. I firmly believe in the power of technology. I just think that more often than not, schools really dive all in, putting the cart before the horse, and you know, just saying, all right, now all of our kids have a device, or we're bringing your own device. You know, you can't just assuming that all kids are going to magically begin to learn and that achievement's going to increase. You know, it's a problem. And if you look at the data and the recent OECD report that came out looking at PISA scores, found a negative correlation between the countries that invested the most in technology and student achievement. And what it comes down to is, you know, we looked at how we were able to increase achievement. You know, really comes down to we focused on fundamentally improving teaching, learning, and leadership first. Okay. Building that foundation before you bring in technology. Before we actually implement it. You know, what is the shared vision? What is the plan? How are you going to hold people accountable? Not accountable, accountable to fire, but accountable to make sure that the technology is leading to uh, positive increases in learning and achievement. And you know, we focused on a pedagogy first, technology second mentality. If the technology is not going to help us do what we do better, we're not just going to throw it in the hands of people and force them to use it. And we see it time and time again. You know, Michael Fullen says, you know, pedagogy is the driver, technology is the accelerator. Mm. And really, it comes back to that foundation. We want to do what we do better. It, it, we can't be all caught up in the bells and whistles, smoke and mirrors that you know, technology sort of uh, drives us towards it in school. So, you know, we, what we're, our work really is now focused on is let's integrate technology with purpose so that students can demonstrate conceptual mastery in a variety of ways. And it's not about learning all the tools. Mm. It's about really focusing on, for educators, focusing on the work we already do. Mm. Educators, instructional design better assessments, feedback. If we work on that, then allow the kids the opportunity to choose the right tool for the right task. That's the power of technology. Mm -hmm. Not us as adults using it and using it as a glorified digital pacifier, but empowering kids to really take ownership, create these amazing products that we can clearly see is aligned to more rigorous standards. And in turn, if kids are still addressing those standards, even if it's in different ways, they will achieve on whatever assessments are thrown out there, thrown their way. Where then do, do teachers and administrators fit into that puzzle? 
you know, students are the drivers. What are teachers and administrators doing on the side or in accordance with them? Yeah, I, I think for teachers and administrators, you know, they have to understand that there's a, a right place and time for technology. And, and I think we also have to be a little more diligent before we go out and just say, oh, well, the district next door just all got Chromebooks, so now we're going to get all Chromebooks. So I think for, you know, administrators and leaders have to look at what are the roles of my position? And that's what I did because, like I said, I wasn't a believer because I thought it was going to uh, take away valuable time. It wasn't going to help my students achieve. It wasn't going to impact learning. You know, all these excuses. Listen, if it's important to you, you'll find a way. If not, you'll make an excuse. <laughs> and in education, challenges, obstacles morph into excuses. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't do this because we don't have money. We can't do this because of mandates and time. We, we can't do this because, you know, there's just too much on my plate. Think about it. It's what everyone says, especially when it comes to technology. So for teachers and administrators, we have to see, make them show them how it saves us time, mm -hmm. how it become, enables us to become more effective and efficient that we already do. And, and the key for our success at New Milford was not asking teachers to do more. Educators work hard enough as it is. We don't want you to work harder. We want you to work smarter and get better results. So it, it's showing where technology has a seamless fit. It's not about the technology. You know, I talked yesterday that every district has their technology plan and then their curriculum and everything else over here. Why are they separate? Everything's about learning. And what role does technology have to enhance that mm -hmm. or, or even support it? Mm -hmm. So when you show educators that it, it, it's not a tough slog, that, that it really can be not just easy but fun, but, you know, easy and fun is great. And I always talk about, you know, with technology, everyone's all happy. You hear all these claims. Well, kids are going to be engaged. Okay, that's great. But do you know how many kids I see engaged with technology that are not learning a darn thing? Mm -hmm. That engagement has to actually lead to deeper, more rigorous learning. Or, again, we're wasting our time and money. So showing them how it's going to help improve what they already do from educator responsibilities, teacher responsibilities, leader responsibilities. So I myself... I, I, I'm on the same page as you, and I, I've noticed that a big theme this year, and probably more than years past, because, you know, when the device race started you know, several years ago, it was all about, like, what do you purchase, you know, how do you implement it, how do you roll it out? Now it seems to me more a question of efficacy. How do you know that things are effective? What sorts of goals are you actually trying to hit? And I think you're kind of getting at this a little bit. So. Talk to me about that concept of efficacy. So how do, how do educators, how do the companies making the technology decide what creates the results that they're looking for? I mean, what should those results be? Well, and I think results mean different things to different people. Because you could say student learning, and, and, but and, how do you and, quantify it? And, and I'm glad you brought that up because, <laughs> and you know, one of my sort of lead-ins when I work with district and building leaders is our country spends billions of dollars a year on EdTech. Show me how your investment has actually improved learning and achievement. Show me evidence. So, we've broken down evidence into four basic categories. Okay. And, and one of the things I think that we were successful is we can provide evidence 
all the time. We were so transparent, which... When you, you know, say we, do you mean when you were in your district? When we were in our district. When and now we district. work with leaders to show... So the first is obviously data. And there's good data and there's bad data. So, you know, in my work, I show data from schools that went one-to-one with iPads and were able to unequivocally show that they increased this achievement on New York State standardized tests. Mm. I mean, it's not even close. I mean, the iPad class is up here. The non-iPad class across the state, the district, is down Way here. Way down at the bottom. Both in ELA and math. So, mm. so data, whether you're looking at achievement, standardized test scores, graduation rates, attendance rates, decreases in discipline. So you have data points, but you know you got to make sure it's good data. Mm-hmm. Another piece is, you know, from an administrative standpoint, is observations and evaluations. One problem is we throw all this technology in, but leaders aren't in classrooms enough providing feedback to teachers mm-hmm. as to whether or not they're implementing it effectively. So, you know, we increased our uh, amount of observations from, you know, if you were tenured, you got one, and then we increased it up to three, minimum, unannounced, come in any time. And we started to get all this feedback, and also, in terms of the process, teachers were able to align artifacts to their observations. So if I came in and observed you, you'd have a set amount of time to upload detailed lesson plans, assessments, student work, all aligned to standards. And by the time the year got over, all that artifacts, all my scripted comments populated into an end-of-the-year evaluation. So you had, could be hundreds of artifacts that clearly articulate what you were doing, not just during the observation, Mm -hmm. but what happened before and after. And then there's portfolios. So, you know, we worked on creating portfolios for our teachers. Digital portfolios? Digital portfolios. Mm -hmm. Not only did our observation and evaluation process create a portfolio because of how we aligned the artifacts, Mm -hmm. whether you liked it or not, you had a portfolio. Mm -hmm. But we also implemented the uh, uh, 20% model where we gave our teachers 20% time to learn during the school day Mm -hmm. instead of their non-instructional duties. But the catch was you need to create a portfolio any way you want to show us how professional practice is being improved with the time. Mm. And then with the work that we, with technology, with our students, we started really empowering them to uh, show, uh, share online. Mm. So we had, you know, rubrics from our teachers. We had examples of student work aligned to the Common Core standards. I mean, we had so much evidence that has been out on the web since 2009 that, you know, anyone could have said, well, you know, this is not legit, but it's, we worked so hard on our instructional design. Mm-hmm. And going back to my, that question I said, when I ask leaders to come up and show me evidence, you can hear pins drop and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. So we need to work. And I think for technology companies is that is great. But if the data really is going to drive meaningful change and, you know, important decisions that are going to really improve the learning culture, then we have to reevaluate, you know, what is the goal of our tool? And if it's just to do low-level questionings, to get kids excited, you know, I mean, that's great, but but it has to be more. And uh, we're swimming in seas of data, seas of data. (laughs) Swimming in seas of data. But But leaders, educators want meaningful data. And I think for technology, you know, how does the tool actually provide us that guidance? 
to reevaluate our instruction, to ensure that kids are meeting the higher standards, because that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, then we, and, and again, I think you see, you know, uh, there are some great programs out there, adaptive programs, for example, uh, such as Read 180, Math 180, that have research to back up the effectiveness of the tool. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if we can get more research, more case studies, to show how the technology is really improving teaching and learning, it'll be a step in the right direction. Well, what sort of data do you think is the most actionable? So, you know, I'm thinking of adaptive platforms. So, you know, the, it, it, the idea of an adaptive platform is that it sort of naturally adapts to where the student is progressing, how they're performing. And so what sort of data do you think is most useful for a teacher and an, or an administrator coming out of that? I think for, for teachers and administrators looking at where the achievement gaps are, mm. looking at uh, when you're aligning it to the different standards, where are kids having trouble grasping mastery of higher level concepts that, you know, whether we like it or not, and I don't like it, we're going to, you know, we were going to be held accountable. Yeah. Uh, but we wouldn't want that, we didn't want that to define us, but with stakeholders, that's what they expect. And you have to keep your stakeholders happy. And again, that's just a fact of being a, a school leader. But but I think with the data is, you know, something that is going to be not too time intrusive, where they can use a particular tool or metric that, that really will provide them with, all right, here's where student A is compared to student B. Here's mm-hmm. where my class is mm-hmm. this time of day. To, and here's where those skills, those concepts, where we really need more reinforcement to help our kids, you know, be successful. Right. But but again, I think, and also, I think there's a downside to data is because, you know, everything shouldn't be data-driven. Uh, I think it's one area to help schools be successful, but it's not the be-all, end-all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think if we can really weed out the good data, it allows to really focus on some other elements that really make schools special. That, that was basically the same issue I experienced in my classroom was not even weeding out the bad data or the good data, but, but actually trying to balance multiple forms of data coming from multiple tools. I mean, have you, how do you recommend people deal with that? You know, if you're using more than one tool, how do you balance this? And, and, I, and I think it comes down to the fact that if you're using multiple tools, are you using them all effectively in pedagogically sound ways? And if not, you know, people love the stuff. If you, and again, if you go to a tech conference and... Like the one we're at right now. Yes. <laughs> and let's say there's, I'm doing a session on digital pedagogy for deeper learning. And then there's a session up against mine, 50 apps in 50 minutes. Guess where everyone's going to go? Unfortunately, they're going to go to 50 apps in 50 minutes. They like the list. Educators love the stuff. And, and I think that if you're using all these tools and grappling with you know, effectiveness, you might have oversaturated your toolbox. And, and I think that's where we get in trouble. Is It's not how many tools you can use. It's not how many you can integrate in a lesson. It's not how many you can integrate into your professional practice as a leader. It's if that tool really is not improving learning or improving professional practice, mm-hmm. then guess what? Get rid of it. And there, what's great about technology is 
how it's evolving. There's so many new tools that are coming out that can can fit specific roles that we're looking for. And, and I think we have to be much more diligent in looking at the value of the tool to support learning and professional practice. I think that's what it comes down to. But the ones that are juggling too many, and, and that's the problem. It's, it, it's not how many tools, how much technology we have. It, it really comes down to is our culture of learning not just preparing kids for college and careers, but preparing them to be this next generation thinkers, doers, inventors, creators, which you cannot put a metric on. Mm-hmm. But it's this more holistic approach and understanding that, you know, technology is not going to get rid of educators, mm-hmm. but educators that effectively utilize technology to do what they do better, yeah, they might cause the, you know... They might rise to the top. Yes. Not might, they will. They will rise to the top. So, okay, I have one last question. Um, And then, you know, I may have one little thing at the end for you. So, you spoke about portfolios. You spoke about sort of these less quantitative uh, pieces of evidence, which, as a former science teacher, I think is fantastic, right? And so, I wonder... As I'm listening to these companies talk about, you know, creating more platforms that encourage student creation, how does one successfully, you know, grade or vet all of those different sort of less quantifiable projects, pieces of evidence? I mean, that's the biggest struggle I see teachers dealing with. I mean, there are rubrics. And I I think you hit a real big pain point is not a technology issue it's a grading issue and grading is very arbitrary and many educators are resistant to utilize rubrics portfolios because of the fear that when it comes down to being judged through standardization that they're not going to pass the test well I will tell you that one thing that a lot of it is Many rubrics are very arbitrary. Yeah. And they're very open. They're very subjective. Subjective. That was the word I was looking for. There you go. So, you know, what we did is, you know, we worked with our teachers to co-collaborate rubrics that were aligned to, you know, as New Jersey was a common core state, you know, we aligned it to those standards. Mm-hmm. And at the bottom of the rubric were all the standards listed out that students had to master mm-hmm. through this, you know, project-based assessment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our teachers started using Instagram, Twitter. Uh, you know, we were doing all these great things with, you know, rubrics as our main assessor. And what happened was that, you know, we still had traditional assessments, but we started integrating more uh, formative feedback in the forms of, you know, when we used a tool, we didn't just use the tool. We make sure, make sure we provide students feedback related to the standards. So as we were doing that, ultimately, then they, they did take a basic assessment. Uh, so we could get both quantitative and qualitative data to support where we're going. And, you know, I, I'm kind of most proud because, you know, not only did we see increases in achievement, you know, even our AP scores increased on average 20% three straight years. A graduate Over how long? three straight years from this from it, we were we never got above forty percent three or higher threes on APs. 
in my last three years, we were 75%, 60%, 65%. We never got more than 40%. But this past year, uh, I saw that our students in New Milford, and again, I'm gone, but our ELA 10th graders scored the seventh highest on the park wow. in the state of New Jersey. Whoa. Which shows you that, again, and, and a lot of my, many of my innovative teachers were ELA, doing all the things that I just talked about. So, Which is funny because I see a lot of tools for math and science, so when I hear ELA, I think that's and, and, and we really worked on creating better rubrics, and again, they were using all kinds of tools, and a lot of it was a collaboration with our media specialist uh, as well. But again, we didn't. If we couldn't create a culture where our teachers felt safe and felt that they would still get results, not we would not have been using technology like we were, and we would not have been using it effectively. And I think then it all comes back to. And, and I work in schools. When I go to schools, I ask teachers when I see technology. And at the surface, I see what I think might be a great lesson. And then I say, well, can you show me how you're giving feedback to your kids? Oh, yeah, yeah, I got a rubric. I got a checklist. And, and, and so there's a big disparity here as to what constitutes even a good rubric. Mm-hmm. And it all comes back to the lack of visibility and support in classrooms from school leaders. You know, I mean, if you were a teacher in my school, you got five evaluations three unannounced observations at mid-year and at end of the year five times we had conversations about your professional practice doesn't go on in every school that's more observation than I ever received probably in my entire time teaching but this comes also down to creating a culture of transparency mm-hmm. results again we talked about how you can define results in different ways but we didn't know what was going on in our classrooms when we started to change and move from business as usual to business as unusual, we finally were able as a community to create a better vision and better plan for where we want to be, especially with technology. I'm cognizant of the time, so you know I feel like we could go on talking forever, but I'm gonna ask you one last question. If you had one piece of advice that you would give companies when they're making products to support teachers and administrators in schools and districts, what would it be? My advice is, it's not just about make. It's not about making their lives easier. The company, and, and the company. No, well, no, even the teachers' lives. Okay. It's not. But and I, I think it, you really have to think about in a, a world that's becoming more and more technology enriched and there's becoming more and more pushback from stakeholders as to we're investing all this money in technology now show us that it's actually making a difference and I work with districts that where their boards have said we're not funding this one-to-one program anymore until you can show us what it's actually doing yeah for our kids so I, I think for companies it, it really is how can you provide how can your tool or platform provide evidence in some form that student learning really is improving and and that's the big kicker is that as we start to scrutinize our purchases and and again we saw it too you know I didn't invest in any money in technology unless I knew that 
it wasn't just going to make my teachers' lives easier, that it was really going to help our kids. And, and I think, I know it's a little, you know, broad, but how does your tool really help? And don't just say engagement. And when you speak about learning, okay, what does that mean? And, and I think you really need to break it down because if you do that, then the adoption embracement becomes pretty uh, a easy process, at least for you know people like me. So let's talk about improvement because that's where we're going. And we don't want to be that statistic in the world that America spends all this money on technology, but it's not doing a darn thing to improve achievement. And that's the biggest pushback, I think, for companies right now is that we are under a microscope. We're under a microscope. You're under a microscope because people want results and we're not getting them. And I think, too, companies really need to think about not just their tool and their platform, but how will they provide professional services to ensure that the tool is being integrated effectively. Mm-hmm. Selling a tool is one piece, but it will come you know, back to you know, haunt you if it's not being integrated effectively. So we have the hardware, the software, the platforms on one side, but the professional learning and development has to be paired with it or else it's not gonna be successful. And I think companies need to start thinking about how they might partner, collaborate with organizations that can work on the professional development piece because then it's a win-win, at least in my opinion. Good words of wisdom. Eric, thank you so much for being on the podcast this early in the morning. No problem. That's everything we've got from South by Southwest EDU 2016. Thanks for listening. I'm Blake Montgomery. This is the Ed Surge Podcast.